This is Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 14 in our series for 2015. And today's date is the 8th of May. And Leon, what have we got going this week? Well, we have a terrific interview with James Farmer, who runs a WordPress enterprise in Melbourne that has a big global market and called InkSub. And he's going to be talking to us all about that. Yep, James has done very well after founding the business. He's got uh, customers include Stanford University and Harvard and people like that. That's right. And uh, then for The Economist, Leon. We're talking to Nicholas Gruen. He's going to be talking to us all about the RBA's decision to cut interest rates this week and whether it makes sense. Yep, and uh, I think he you know, summed it up by saying he thinks the RBA has been too pussyfooted. That's right. Not, not strong enough. Okay, well then let's listen to James. James Farmer, you're the co-founder and CEO of InkSub, spelt with a C, not a K, technology company that works pretty well exclusively with WordPress, and you've, got, you've developed a global audience in relative very short time. So tell us where it came from, what it does, and some of your clients, because they're interesting too. Oh, sure thing. Um, so we uh, started off back in 2005, technically with a site called EduBlogs, that uh, hosted uh, essentially blogs for education, and is still going strong. Yeah, we've got a, picked up Geelong Grand the other day to add to our kind of list of clients uh, internationally but um essentially uh in 2007 we took off as a consultancy agency and that um then uh ballooned into this um company called wpmu dev <laughs> which i think i think adds to my list of uh, poor poorly uh pronunciated pronunciated pronounced that's the one a uh, company game yeah, well at least they raise curiosity <laughs> So tell us about InkSub. Um, yeah, so um, uh, these days um, we have these uh, two companies, um, EduBlogs and uh, WPMU Dev. And um, essentially we provide uh, WordPress plugins, uh, themes and hosting for um, tens of thousands of uh, people around the world. And they would include universities and corporates? Uh, abs- absolutely, yeah. Um, and what do they use this for? Um, they use it for a variety of different things. With education, uh, obviously there's an awful lot of, kind of blogs as a learning platform, as a portfolio tool, all of those different things. And uh, with the other company, <laughs> um, it's uh, a bit like uh, Bunnings for websites. So uh, you download a plugin, you stick it on your site, and you can add an e-commerce platform or a blogging tool or a social media integration. So you provide those those themes and those those platforms, your resources? Absolutely, yeah. So we have um, a team of about 50 people, and we uh, create uh, these plugins, we create these themes, we uh, keep them updated, um, we, we develop new ones, and uh, then uh, people have the opportunity to um, you know, use them on their own sites while we keep them updated and manage them and offer them support and all those things. Where do your clients come from? Oh, look, um, to be honest, uh, mostly the uh, US. I think about 60% of our customer base is in the US. Um, otherwise, there's a, a decent proportion in, uh, in Australia and, uh, of course, in Europe as well. Uh, but I mean, we're not the uh, not the cheapest solution. There's certainly other ways that people can put it around. And so affluent kind of Western nations tend to form the basis of our customer. Now, a lot of people would consider WordPress a consumer tool product, but you've taken it well beyond that, haven't you? Oh, look, um, we, uh, we're trying to uh, do everything that we can to uh, help the platform succeed. I mean, it's, it's a brilliant project. It's open source. Um, anybody can download it and use it um, on their website and put it together. And we're just trying to, uh, if you will, keep up the, uh, the momentum it currently has and uh, provide people with 
tools based around that that um, allow them to extend it. Um, really, uh, WordPress is in a two-way fight at the moment between um, the free open source platform with the tools on top of it and the third-party platforms such as a Wix, Weebly, Squarespace, which I imagine most podcast listeners will have heard of, um, and uh, these kind of third-party commercial providers versus the open source alternative. So now you've built, in this company, you've built a thing called Upfront, which actually has revolutionized um, the use of uh, WordPress in a lot of people's view. Oh, uh, look, we, we certainly hope that it's... Um, it's got a chance of doing that and we, we think it's um, pushing that along and I mean essentially companies like Squarespace have been running Super Bowl ads as in you know just not just this year but last year as well and they have enormous resources they have enormous ambition and they're creating these third-party commercial platforms that are really easy to use so why shouldn't um, an open source platform like WordPress be easy to use too and uh, we hope that we've gone some way towards making that the case. So th- this is turning WordPress into drag and drop for the average man, woman? Um, absolutely, that's ent- entirely what we're uh, trying to achieve. We're giving it a crack at uh, making it um, approachable and usable by you know, anybody. Um, it even allows me to design themes. <laughs> How much does it cost the, uh, the average person to sign up with you guys? So currently um, Upfront is um, available through... Um, WPMU Dev as a uh, as a paid download, so people can uh, get it. I think for I think ninety nine bucks a month or five hundred eighty eight dollars a year, which, like I said, is a fairly high price point. But then the, the value is pretty incredible. But we do hope to uh, in the next few months have a free version available that uh, allows people to uh, essentially um, just get to grips with it and use it to create their own designs, create their own sites. So they could sell, they could share. How does that work for you in your business model then in this oh. web web economics? Well, that's 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 web economics is it's fascinating, isn't it? It's um, it's such a uh, challenging environment. Essentially, uh, I'm kind of of the belief that if we can build um, a sufficient user base and if we can provide a tool that's of enough use to enough people then um, the economics will follow from that and uh, I think it's very difficult to do that while uh, putting it behind a pay paywall at them so we're in the first stage of this product at the moment. So upfront light and then upfront with the full, all the bells and whistles? Uh, I'd, I'd say it was more um, kind of uh, upfront uh, the fundamentals and then uh, the bells and whistles will be extra designs. It will be cute plugin integrations, and it will of course be you know our, we do um we have a crazy like kind of I think thirteen people offering twenty four seven expert support in all aspects of WordPress, and so that's that's the uh, the paid version. The uh, the free version will be uh, something where you uh, you get to play with it yourself. And I mean it's a digital object, so as long as we uh, have got enough hosting and bandwidth, it doesn't cost us anything to uh, share it with people. So n- now the services you offer are global. You've got people working on it who are online to you is because there are three people in this building in this room now but you've got dozens of them out there operating 24 7 haven't you um yeah well that's been a really interesting process um essentially uh you know when we started the idea of a remote company didn't really exist and so we've kind of ridden along with with that and um yeah basically um all of our developers um are overseas uh, some in the States, some in Europe, uh, some in Asia. Um, we essentially have um, our design team here. So how do you manage that, uh, working with a remote team? Well, that's been <laughs> a challenge, to say the very least. Um, but we've got around it. Obviously, email is a big thing at start. But these days, we, uh, we use a lot of Slack 
um, which I don't know if you guys would be familiar with. It's it's a brilliant, brilliant product. Um, it's like what Google Hangouts should be. And uh, so we do a lot of Slack communication. We have a lot of processes. It incorporates with Asana, which is a beautiful project management system that uh, we've used pretty much since the start, oh, the start of Asana. And um, yeah, of course, like I said, there's always good old email in the background. And they're available, say somebody in Singapore, for example, um, needs something, it might come from Colorado. Absolutely. I mean, um, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating how we kind of have a, a, a you know, 24 hour kind of cycle of some people will complete some work and then they'll come in here and people will check it and say, OK, what's this about here? They might do some more work and they'll feed it back to the people. The other end, it's, it's relentless would be one way of looking at it. So the checking process is here in Melbourne, in your office? Um, look, definitely. I, th- I, think, I think it's important, and we've certainly found it important, to look for the right people in the right locations. And so it's no kind of accident that we've ended up with essentially um, our design and editorial team here in Melbourne because those are the kind of things that we we need to be hands-on with we need to be talking about and looking at and pointing at all sorts of things whereas of course when it comes to you know development of you know kind of a large web application or php framework there's not a whole lot i can contribute apart from to say this is how i'd like it to work and then test Mm. and then feedback yeah because the knowledge is out there and the talent's out there and you've harnessed it and and most of our developers like to work in darkened rooms on their own yeah. <laughs> yeah, close to a pizza shop. <laughs> but I mean, this is not this structure is not uncommon. I mean, the guys doing games, for example, uh, mobile games, for example, use a similar thing. Absolutely, yeah. It's become increasingly common. And I mean, Australian sites like Freelancer.com, um, you know, uh, have uh, really um, kind of built on this and uh, brought this, um, you know, kind of facility of people working with people around the world to to life to the mainstream. And I think it's fantastic. Where do you see it all going, James? Because this has opened up. It's made it a lot easier for people to have a website, to have a a position on the internet. Mm. You know, Fred's Coffee Shop can do it (laughs) uh, with a tool like Upfront. How do you see your business developing? Oh, it's 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 always it's so hard to say. I mean, we've we've gone through so many different transitions ourselves in just a small number of years. I I'd I'd like to see us providing, um, you know. uh, better tools to people to um, in increasingly in, in gaining more adoption. Um, currently, we have a we have a niche or a niche, as all my American colleagues keep on calling it, um, in the uh, in the education space. It's still a fairly small one. Um, I'd like that to expand dramatically. And currently, we have um, you know this. Um, I think well, we've had kind of say. 360,000 odd people sign up for Dev over the years. Um, we've got about 16 or 17,000 current paying members, and you know I'd obviously like to see that uh, expand so that some of this uh, vast WordPress user base that is out there are uh, using our tools and getting the most out of them. How do you expect to get word out there about yourself? Well, um, I've kind of uh, applied some of the uh, similar principles. Um, we currently have a blog um, edited here by um, uh, Ray Wilson, um, who uh, um, in takes in all sorts of contributors and various different things and um, I think we've got something like we hit a new record 66,000 page views on it um, in one day um, in one day just last week and that's just about WordPress so um, really um, you know kind of we're committed to providing awesome articles usage guides materials for people and um, Google rewards us if you will for providing good content and that's that's a way that we've really gone at it from the start so the sky's the limit then uh, well, <laughs> I don't, how many things can you write about WordPress? A, a lot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, there's, a, there's certainly a huge opportunity for growth in this area. James Farmer, thank you very much. 
It's nice to see um, an Australian tech company with a global market, isn't it, coming up that way? It is. It's doing really well, and they're really good people there. Okay, and uh, now let's listen to Nick Gruen. Nicholas Gruen, the RBA yesterday cut interest rates to a record low of 2%. What's your view about this? Well, look, I'm not that fussed about what's happening now, but uh, we've had a problem for really three years while the official family, the Treasury and the Reserve Bank have sat around with pretty dismal forecasts and they've got a new interpretation of the textbook, which is that we don't try and get back to full employment as rapidly as possible, or by full employment I mean the maximum level of employment consistent with the bank, the Reserve Bank meeting its inflation target. We we sort of agonise and sit on our hands and we say, oh, well, we're worried about the housing market and we're worried about this, and we've been doing that for three years now, and the uh, unemployment rate has remarkably drifted up. We're now well above the unemployment rate in two economies that we've thought of as a kind of basket cases uh, for a fair while anyway, the UK and the US. Uh, they've had much less growth, growth than us since the global financial crisis and um, they've got, they've got uh, lower unemployment. So, so my concern is that uh, we haven't been vigorous enough and we haven't been vigorous enough for a long time now. Uh, in February 2013, the Reserve Bank's statement on monetary policy talked about its disappointment that uh, unemployment hadn't come down lower and forecast that it would continue to rise, uh, not just in the short term but over the forecast period. And then it proceeded not to do anything for another three months after which it cut interest rates by 0.25%. That was down, I think, from memory to 2.75% while the rest of the developed world had their cash rates sitting around zero. And so the Reserve Bank simply has taken its eye off unemployment as an issue? Uh, well, it's done that, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's got this dual mandate to try to maximise employment at the same time as price stability. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to just say, you know, uh, the, unfortunately this debate too often turns into a debate between bleeding hearts and hardheads, and I don't want to say I'm a bleeding heart. I'm not saying we should do... uh, What I'm arguing is we should be going for maximum growth. Uh, Maximum growth happens to minimise unemployment. And I'm also saying that the Reserve Bank and the commentariat generally have entertained themselves with all sorts of ideas, which are uh, all sorts of ideas about a kind of overriding additional requirement on the on the Reserve Bank to uh, try and set interest rates to deliver financial stability. Well, now we've got th- that. That means we have three targets. We have unemployment, we have inflation, we have financial stability. If the Reserve Bank wants to make the, re- the financial stability argument, then I think it needs to do it with more than the seat of its pants. It needs to come out and produce a model of what it's doing and show us that the benefits of what it's doing outweigh the costs. The evidence suggests that the benefits of higher rates, which are that it's you know marginally less likely, very marginally less likely to trigger a, a boom and bust, and, th- and therefore if we do have a bust, the bust might be ever so slightly smaller. Those are the benefits. The costs are 
let's say sixteen billion dollars a year if there's one percent of growth you know if there's if the economy is now one percent smaller than it would otherwise have been they're of that order of magnitude and when you try and add those two things up uh, as some people have in other contexts with other countries making similar choices you find that the costs of high interest rates are a lot higher than the benefits and we haven't really had that debate at all that would suggest that a cut in the interest rates isn't going to really do that much for the economy. Why? Because you're not dealing with other issues like unemployment and growth, for that matter. Well, no, I mean, the interest, cutting interest rates more vigorously is a tool we have to stimulate growth. We've had this story that... Um, interest rate cuts won't you know don't induce growth so much this is the the reserve bank has run with this argument it seems to be using that argument i mean i don't think i've seen it quantified but it seems to be using that argument to justify not bothering cutting rates well then why did it cut rates yesterday i mean it sort of doesn't make sense it's possible that the effect of small cuts in rates is smaller than it used to be so what we have a certain amount of we have a certain amount of um uh, gunpowder in the cannon and uh, we should be using it. So what sort of impact do you see the rate cut having? Oh, pretty marginal, just like the Reserve Bank. I mean, the res- it, it seems that it, you know, it was, it, it, it argued that it was, it was uh, appropriate to be targeting a lower exchange rate or not targeting a lower exchange rate, but facilitating a lower exchange rate. And uh, the, what happened on the cut was the exchange rates went up because the way in which the bank discussed the cut was such as to lead the markets to believe that uh, the bank was then less likely to cut again. So, you know, I just think uh, my my view is you use these instruments, well, I was going to say as vigorously as possible. Maybe you don't, maybe you don't cut the rate to zero tomorrow, but you, you use these changes in rates vigorously and we've used them incredibly timidly it's 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 um i don't know when we moved rates by more than 0.25 percent i think i mean i can remember we did that in the uh in the global financial crisis but uh, i would like to see us do that more often i would like to see us target target turning points uh so Yes, there are times it's kind of nice when you sit around and occasionally there's a 0.25% adjustment. That would be good if we were sitting around at, you know, 4.9% unemployment or a bit lower. We've, we got it down to 39 but that looks too low because there were quite strong inflationary pressures at that point. But, you know, if you're... If you're sitting around somewhere a little under 5% unemployment, then that's appropriate. You sit around and you occasionally move them up or down by 0.25%. And my argument would be that if the economy is seriously overheating or seriously underheating, then you get fairly vigorous about trying to get it back to its optimal path. Nick, is there not a danger in this, though? We've got an ageing population which is dependent on, uh, you know, it's got a fixed income. We've also got what appears to be a housing bubble, and that will have serious down, serious consequences down the track. Do you see any danger in, in continuing to lower the interest rate? One word answer to that, Gary, is yes, I do see a danger, and that's why I see a role for macroprudential policy. So macroprudential policy tries to finesse monetary policy by saying uh, monetary policy is there to try to regulate the economy at large. If you have particular concerns about financial stability, uh, then 
address those with targeted regulation. Now, other countries have done this more vigorously. Australia, again, the Reserve Bank, from what I've seen, has kind of agonised about this. It has done one thing, which is to be fairly vigorous in insisting that the banks uh, use tests for home borrowers which target their affordability at higher levels of interest rate than the interest rate that prevails. But in other countries, uh, the authorities have done much more than that. They've, they've made it much harder to have high loan to valuation, high loan to valuation ratio loans and that sort of thing. And again, the Reserve Bank has talked about that but it hasn't done it. So, and, and the other thing is that if you want to stop a housing bubble, interest rates that are 0.25% or 0.5% higher or lower aren't really, you know, they're not going to do that. They're, they're going to sort of, they're going to make you feel like you're atlas with the world on your shoulders with all these dilemmas to handle. But if you've got a housing bubble problem, which it's a reasonable argument that perhaps we have, then I think you need to take vigorous action in that area, not have interest rates that are half a percent higher than they need to be for the rest of the economy because you're worried about a housing bubble. That, that will do very little to restrain the housing bubble. So you're saying the Reserve Bank has to become more active? Well, it has, I'm suggesting that if it wants to use this excuse or if it wants to say that it's not lowering rates because it's concerned about a housing bubble, then it has to then, it, we should be then having a much more vigorous debate about what is possible with macroprudential policy, what is possible with policy that is directed specifically at the problem that the Reserve Bank is saying is of concern to it, rather than holding the entire economy hostage to this particular problem that it has. Nicholas Grin, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Gary. Nicholas is uh pretty outspoken on these matters. Yeah, well, it, it, I'd question sort of how much uh, the interest rate cuts are going to help the economy. Well, the way things are, uh, most comment has been is not going to do very much at all. That's right. In fact, it's been counterproductive in that the uh, everybody thinks it's the last cut they're going to make and it's, it's pushed the dollar up. That's right. And now, after all that, uh, the news, Leon. Well, the qu big question, Gary, is whether there's a breakthrough with Greece. Uh, AFP is running a report quoting EU sources that Greeks and its creditors are finally making progress after its combative finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, was effectively sidelined from talks and just now Greece has paid 200 million euro as an interest payment to the to the uh, EU, which is good. As well as that, Greece says it might reach a broader deal on securing financial aid for the country by June. And up until late last week, Greek government officials were talking about an in initial deal being reached within days, despite ongoing disagreement between the two sides over what measures the country still needs to take to secure remaining f money in its bailout fund. And we're talking here about labour market issues. We're talking about pension reforms. We're talking about privatisations. Now negotiators are saying there are, quote, encouraging signs from the talks over the weekend about the reforms that Athens needs to undertake.
to get 7.2 billion euros of bailout funds. And the talks have been led by economist and junior minister Euclid Sakalotis, who was last week asked to replace a controversial Varoufakis as head of Greece's team of negotiators. But there are still tensions with the Greek government saying that differences between the EU and IMF are blocking an agreement. So watch this space. You have to think that Greece is just going deeper into debt. They get it. There's very little cash left to pay the interest. Well, I think they're hoping for an agreement by next week. By next Monday. For more bailout money just increases the load and the long-term risk. On the plus side, though, Eurozone economic growth is slightly stronger this year than previously forecast, according to the European Commission's latest numbers. It predicts 1.5% growth this year. That's up 0.2 percentage points from its forecast in February. And a lot of that, Gary, is because of cheaper oil, a weak euro, and stimulus measures. Yeah, that's true, because oil's coming back up again too. Well, yes, but uh, anyway, the improvement was despite a much gloomier outlook for Greece, which saw forecast growth cut cut down to 0.5%, down from 2.5%, which is quite severe. Other bad news is that HSBC has confirmed that activity in China's manufacturing sector has contracted by the biggest amount in a year, and the final reading for April came in at 48.9, short of the 49.2 figures released recently. And this result contrasts with the official PM I released by the National Bureau of Statistics last week, which came out at 50.1. And that's seen as a key barometer of the country's economic well. Yeah, in health. other words, no, it's 0.1 of an, in- of an increase. I mean, 50% is uh, ne- neutral. Some worrying news out of the US, their trade deficit widened in March to the highest level in more than six years, fueled by record surge in imports as commercial activity resumed at West West Coast ports following a resolution to labour disputes where the port operators and the unions signed some sort of agreement. And the gap increased 43.1%. That's the biggest jump in 18 years to 51.4 billion. And that's the biggest level since October 2008, Gary. Not good. Meanwhile, as uh, we discussed earlier with uh, Nicholas Gruen, the Reserve Bank of Australia has slashed the official cash rate to a new record low of 2% to strengthen household demand and boost the economy. And they lowered the cash rate by 25 basis points in a move largely in line with economists and financial market expectations. And this is the second cut this year after the RBA surprised financial markets when it reduced the rate by 25 basis points in February. You'd have to say it's not going to do much good. It's what somebody with a $300,000 mortgage is going to save 44 bucks a month. Well, I think the issue is more about what's going to happen out of Canberra and what's going to happen with the budget. Well, yeah, that's true, and that's going to be really uh, a bit painful, I think, by the look of it. Now, Australia's trade deficit has missed expectations in March because of the sagging prices for iron ore and coal. And according to figures from the ABS, the nation's trade deficit narrowed a seasonally adjusted 18% to $1.32 billion. Also, the inflation rate has stayed well below the Reserve Bank's 2-3% target. Consumer prices were up 0.3% in April, following a 0.4% in March, according to the TD Security. Securities Melbourne Institute monthly inflation gauge, and that means the annual rate of inflation is 1.4% in April, and that's the fifth consecutive month it's been below 2%, Gary. Yeah, which in one way is good. On the other hand, uh, you've got uh, consumer prices rising. Now, according to Dun & Bradstreet's latest business expectation com- uh, survey, business confidence is down. It's uh, fallen to 14.9 points, down from 20.7 points in the previous quarter and 19.5 points at the same time last year. And consumer confidence has also fallen, largely due to concerns about next week's federal budget, according to the ANZ Roy Morgan's Consumer Confidence Barometer. They found confidence was down 2.8% 
And that's completely reversed the previous week's 2.8% jump. I think a lot of this is the uncertainty in Canberra. The budget is a worry. Uh, It's small wonder that confidence is down. Job advertisements rose in April. According to the ANZ Job Advertisements series, it showed advertisements rose uh, 2.3% after falling for the first time in 10 months in March. And in trend terms, job ads have now increased for 18 consecutive months, but the pace of growth has been slowing since the end of last year, which is not a good sign, Gary. No, it's not. And, and, you know, we've got to get uh, more investment in, in more jobs. And building approvals hit a record high in March as the surge in the number of apartments continued to increase. The ABS data showed the number of buildings approved list it lifted a seasonally adjusted 2.8% to 19,419 in March and that's eclipsed January's previous high water mark of 19,282 approvals. So the building trade's doing reasonably well. Well yeah but I don't know how long this can be sustained. It's been going great guns for about 10 months. I don't know whether the next 10 months are going to be that good. I think 2016 could be a problem. Well yeah and the bubble might burst. I mean they're saying that Sydney and possibly Melbourne, uh, housing prices are still going to rise. But you, you begin to think if it's a really tough budget that they've got to come off. That's right. And that's not good news for people in the building trade. No, it is not. Now, uh, retail sales only rose 0.3% in March to $24.13 billion, according to the ABS. And that figure was below expectations. Uh, so it's up 0.3%. All economists had forecast sales would be up 0.4%. And that coincides with news this week that Woolworths has delivered total sales of 14,956. That's down 2.1% on the previous corresponding month, uh, of the previous corresponding period. And as a result, it's shedding about 800 jobs to deliver $500 million in savings. And that's on top of the 400 jobs it's already been cut. Yep, that's right. A lot of these are back office jobs. Uh, but you have to say that Woolies has got a problem because Coles is, a lot of their loss is, is uh, customers moving across to Coles. That's right. And uh, meanwhile, there's a warning from Deloitte Access Economics saying the Abbott government is going to sink $14 billion in deeper into deficit next financial year. Now, Tony Abbott has promised a dull budget, but Deloitte Access Economics says in its report it will be anything but. And the words written are, 2015-16 looks like it could have been written by Stephen King and painted by Edvard Munch. And it predicts this year's budget deficit will be $5.5 billion worse and come close to $46 billion. It says personal income tax revenue will fall short of the growth projected by Treasury. Because, frankly, wages aren't rising that fast. And Deloitte says company and superannuation tax revenue will also fail to meet forecasts made by the budget update in December. And add to that a slowing Chinese economy, falling commodity prices and parliamentary gridlock. And you'd say Australia's going to be in the red for well into the next decade, Gary. Yeah, be lucky it's only one decade. And uh, consulting firm BIS Shrapnel is warning that badly needed civil infrastructure work to offset the slowdown in mining is going to be weaker because of the impact of the slumping iron ore price in Western Australia, which has led to companies like BHP Billiton to reduce their infrastructure spending, and the Queensland Labor government's decision not to privatise state assets. And BIS Shrapnel says total engineering construction will nosedive from 133 Point three billion in 2013 to $79.5 billion. And that's $17, $17 billion lower than a year ago, Gary. Yeah, there's even some suggestion BHP might lose its credit rate, drop its credit rating. That's right. Well, they've been put on uh, negative watch. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, let's just watch the space. It is. BIS Shrapnel is saying that while the fall-off had been anticipated with a slowdown in mining, the situation is now exacerbated by a lower oil price and the Queensland government's decision to reject the privatisation plan by the Campbell-Newman's coalition government. And it says that's going to keep economic growth levels below 3%.
Now, uh, next week's budget, and uh, the government's expected to announce measures that will reduce the number of wealthy Australians on part pensions. The $11.5 million threshold for assets outside the family homes is going to be cut to $820,000 for couples, and for singles it will fall to $550,000. So that means fewer wealthy Australians on part pensions. Yeah, which I guess in the current circumstances is fair enough. And uh, on the upside, you've got an increase in the uh, some of the pension payouts. That's right. And the government could soon be considering proposals that will see migrants helping reining the budget deficit and bringing tens of billions of dollars in extra revenue because the Productivity Commission is looking at a scheme that will see migrants pay their way into Australia and they'll pay an entry fee. Now, that could replace the present system that uses skills and family reunion. So that's quite uh, controversial, and uh, it's been criticised by the Australian Industry Group, ethnic groups, and the ACTU. And the banks came in with their profits, and now Westpac posted a flat first-half cash profit of $3.778 billion. That's only slightly higher than $3.772 billion post in the previous corresponding period. And in the six months to March, ANZ posted a cash profit of $3.68 billion. That's only up 5% on the $3.52 billion in the previous corresponding period. Mm. Well, yeah, the banks, are, one has to say that the banks had to flatten out the way things are going. I think so. I think so. And the final bit of news, Gary, is that uh, the Abbott government has abandoned plans for a Google tax and instead... The Australian Taxation Office is looking at a world-first proposal that's going to force technology companies like Apple and Google to disclose the royalty payments they make to tax havens. Now, that won't change how much tax they actually pay, Gary, but it does force them to detail interest and royalties paid to associated companies offshore, and they'd also have to include costs paid to third parties for products. Now, potentially, Gary, I think that could result in a big slugging match between the Australian government and technology giants like Google and Apple and Microsoft, which have until now refused to disclose related party transactions. Well, yeah, but what's it do for our bottom lab tax take? Well, it doesn't do anything for the tax take, but it makes it more transparent. Now, what's going to be interesting is if this is picked up by other countries and what's going to happen then. Well, yeah, that's right. Then then it makes it easier to bring to um, sort out the tax problem. That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And uh, next week we've got... Uh, next week we've got an, issue, an interview with a guy called Taichi Hoshino. He's the CEO of Monetize. It's an outfit that uses algorithms to benchmark consumers' financial health against the market and offers them bespoke and better deals with the banks. Sounds good. And that's it for now. So in the meantime, you can catch us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.